Hello, 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 and welcome back to Netflix, Coffee, and Questioning Humanity. Welcome to part two of my Stranger Things deep dive. In part one, we covered everything that led up to the production of season one. Who made the show and why? What was the process like? What was the inspiration? How did casting go? So if you missed that and are interested in how Stranger Things came to be, be sure to check out my last episode. However, today we are going into production and we are going to start at the beginning of season one. And I'm nosy, so I like to know all about production. Like, what are the rules on set? Was there any drama? What was the budget? How did viewers really respond? Does the fandom accurately represent the viewership count? I'll be sharing all that and more, of course. First, let's roll the sirens and get our caffeine ready to go. Friendly reminder that this is an explicit podcast, which means I may discuss explicit content while most certainly using explicit language. So little ears, those easily offended, and my mom and dad may want to bow out. Also, there will be a portion of this episode where I do have spoilers. I will let you know clear as day before they start. I'll give you a ton of warning. I will have a timestamp for that in the show notes, description, whatever you want to call it. That won't be until more towards the end of the episode, though, so you're good right now. Now, on with the show. I am switching it up a little bit today. I was browsing Walmart in the chips and cookie aisle as one does when they're looking for a snack. And I saw these tea cookies. They're called social. I don't know what they're actually called. They're just like cookies that you dip in tea or coffee or whatever. And I was like, that sounds really friggin' good. And then that very same day after I put those bad Larry's in my basket, I saw the Oatly Barista Blend Oat Milk and I was absolutely stoked. I have never felt so old in my life getting excited over tea cookies and fucking oat milk. And if you don't know, because I didn't know, apparently the Oatly oat milk and the Oatly barista blend are very different. I thought it was just like the shape of the bottle. I was like, maybe it's just like easier for baristas to use, easier for them to handle. No, 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 no. These are very, very different. So now I have the Oatly Original Oat Milk, the Oatly Barista Blend Milk slash Creamer situation, and I found at Wegmans, I'm sure you can find it whatever grocery store you have if they have Oatly, they have an oat gurt, like a yogurt, but with oats, I guess. I wasn't sure how I was going to jive with it, but I was like, let's give it a go. Mostly because I found this fucking bomb granola. I sound so fucking dumb talking about granola and oat milk, whatever, whatever. It's good, I promise. If you're an oat milk fan, like you, you get me right now. But yeah, I found this lemon blueberry granola and I can't remember the brand name off the top of my head. It's that brand that's like super healthy. It's gluten-free, non-GMO mostly. They have some glutinous stuff, I guess. And it's got like an old man in like a, in the, a fedora, not a fedora. What the fuck is that hat called? Like a cap, like a Peaky Blinders cap on. Now I sound stupid. Now I just have to look it up because now I don't even know if I'm giving an accurate description of this mascot for this brand. Okay. It's called Bob's, apparently. Really easy to remember. Bob's Red Mill Home Style Granola Lemon Blueberry. It is my latest obsession. I already went through a whole bag. I think in like three days I was having it for breakfast with my oat gurt every morning. I'm 
I am beyond obsessed. It is so fucking delicious. And it doesn't taste like regular granola, like from a granola bar. This shit tastes like sweet and crunchy, but not too crunchy. It's the best granola I've ever had. We're done with fucking granola. Let me talk about caffeine. Okay. I say all that to say I got the tea cookies and I got the oat milk barista blend and I was like, all the stars have aligned. I need to have tea. So I did that. And that's what I have. And it's really fucking hot out. So it was a bad idea. I have my AC turned off because it's too loud. So I am slowly melting. But the tea is delicious. So it's worth it. And if you want this special Oatly Barista Blend oat milk, don't think it's too far out of reach. It's kind of hard to find for me, at least where I live. But it can't be that special because they sell it next to fucking Coco Melon Toys and a $4 machete at Walmart. So I'm sure you can find it. Okay, so I have snacks, I have my caffeine, I am ready to talk some Stranger Things. Let's start off with the filming. The filming of the first season began on September 25th, 2015 and was extensively done in Atlanta, Georgia with the Duffer Brothers and Sean Levy handling the direction of individual episodes. So that's where they filmed it. Season one had eight episodes and each episode took about 11 days to film over the course of six months. And it's estimated that each episode had a budget of $6 million. Now I know that sounds like a lot, It is a lot, but wait until you hear the fucking budget for this recent season. I just about shit my pants. The first scene that was shot was the Dungeons and Dragons scene from the first episode. And the Duffer brothers were really concerned with how the actors would get along, like the child actors, how they would mesh on set. But to their relief, they said, quote, our boys flew through the scenes effortlessly and energetically and their chemistry was electric. They felt like they had known each other their whole lives, which hallelujah, right? Could you imagine if the chemistry was bad? Speaking of kids, though, it was a fun time for them to film. But of course, they also had some pretty strict rules while filming because these are kids. They need some order or they'll just go crazy. This rule only applied to Charlie and Millie, but, you know, it was still a rule. No British accents. They are British. So that was their natural tongue. I don't believe at this point there are any other British actors. There is in this current season. We'll get to we'll get to Eddie. Don't you worry. But kind of obvious. Yeah, don't use your British accent on the show. Duh. But they made that a rule. Kind of an obvious rule. I don't know if that meant like offset as well. Like if they were just hanging out on the sidelines or talking to the directors, did they still want to stay in their American accent? I don't know. But that was on the list of rules. No details given. Charlie said that while learning the American accent, the hardest thing to say was Nancy, which I never would have guessed that. Millie actually learned her American accent by watching Hannah Montana. What a fucking legend. That's a very interesting way to learn an American accent. Cheating canker sore on the Stewart family lips, they walk. Sweet niblets. But I feel like for a lot of celebrities outside of the US, American television is what taught them about America, taught them about the accent, the lifestyle. So that doesn't surprise me totally. Another rule, no cell phones were allowed on set, which I think is fairly common for shows and films, as well as the next rule, which was no talking about the plot. No, 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 no. Not to your friends, not to your mom, no one. No haircuts were allowed outside of set. Steve Harrington, this was specific for his character. As silly as this may sound, this is mostly for continuity. You can't, you know, one day show up and you have a bowl cut and then the next day you have, you know, your head shaved or even like a hair out of place. 
That ruins the continuity completely. But Steve Harrington's hair was like gold. I'm sure they had that shit fucking insured. His hair was iconic. The kids also could not bulk up. They needed to stay chubby or lanky to reflect their age. They're an awkward age, you know, kids aren't jacked or super fit at that age, you know? They wanted them to reflect real kids, not LA kids. The next rule I thought was pretty interesting. It was to prepare to lose your voice and be ready to film by the next day. Which for me, I'm like, how you, like, you can't control that. What, what, how, how? Apparently lozenges, tea, vocal rest, whatever you needed to do had to be done. And you needed to show up to set ready to film the next day with a totally normal voice. Voices apparently were frequently lost, not only from talking all day every day for six months, but there was also, if you recall, a ton of screaming. Speaking of talking all day every day, according to Millie Bobby Brown, Eleven only had 42 lines, I think, approximately in season one, which I thought was, you know, obvious, but also I totally wouldn't have guessed that. But now that I know, I'm like, fucking duh. Another rule was get comfortable wearing vintage 80s clothing. Wear them on set, wear them off set, wear them all the time. And the final rule was showing up to set neatly scrubbed. Because the time period is so specific, only professionals could make them up, do their hair, do their makeup. It's their job to know exactly what that would look like, how it would be applied, how things would be styled. So you needed to show up clean, a fresh canvas. This rule was actually implemented because of Millie Bobby Brown. In an interview on NPR, the Duffer Brothers praised Millie for her incredible skills as an actress and said she was able to adjust her performance to different lenses or different camera positions in a way that most child actors don't know how to do. But they also said that there were times on set when they were reminded that she was just a little girl. The example that Ross Duffer gave, which was what put this rule in motion was quote one day she showed up on set and she was just covered head to toe in glitter and she's like I don't know where all this glitter came from I'm not having this problem with any of my adult actors David Harbour is not coming in covered in glitter end quote removing the glitter delayed their shooting schedule by 45 minutes which doesn't seem like a lot maybe to you and I but that's a lot you have a budget you have a strict time frame Every minute is precious, so that was probably very annoying. Everything that day was probably delayed. They might have had to cut corners. People had to work extra hard to catch up, so very annoying, I'm sure. The first season begins in November 1983 when researchers at Hawkins National Laboratory open a rift to the Upside Down, an alternate dimension that reflects onto the real world. A monstrous humanoid creature escapes and abducts a boy named Will Byers and a teenage girl named Barbara Holland. Of course, Will's mother Joyce and the town's police chief Jim Hopper go on a hunt for Will. At the same time, a young psychokinetic girl who goes by the name Eleven escapes from the laboratory and assists Will's friends Mike, Dustin, and Lucas in their own efforts to find Will. The boys were big time Dungeons and Dragons nerds, and so they dubbed the creature the Demogorgon. The Demogorgon entered Hawkins, Indiana in November 1983. The creature originated from the Upside Down. When Eleven made interdimensional contact with it, a gate between dimensions opened up at the lab. It was important to the Duffers that the horror elements were done practically. 
they had grown up on genre films before computer graphics, and they felt like tangible effects like in Alien, The Thing, Hellraiser, etc. made things much more terrifying. They anticipated to use 80% practical effects and 20% computer graphics, but the final product was more of a 50-50 split. The visual artists at Aaron Sims Creative were hired to help them design the monster and the look of the Upside Down. The Duffers spoke to them at length about the creature designs of H.R. Geiger, Clive Barker, and Guillermo del Toro. The brothers felt like the monsters they created were so effective because of their strangeness. If you encounter a being from another dimension or planet, it should look extremely unfamiliar. The crazier and more bizarre it looked, the more scary it would be. From early on, they knew they wanted their monster to be a person in a suit with animatronic elements, so the monster could actually interact with actors in real time. Spectral Motion, who had previously worked with Guillermo del Toro, were brought in to build the monster. They had only about two months to complete the creature, meaning there was absolutely no room for error. They had to get it right the very first time. The robotics engineer designed the animatronics so the movement of the head pedals moved in unpredictable patterns. The patterns never repeated themselves. The Duffer brothers were so happy with this. They thought it was creepy and organic and real. The Upside Down was created through a mix of practical and visual effects. Many of the vines and growth were actually moving and pulsing with the visual effects brought in when they filmed something like a city street. The fake corpse of Will Byers used in episode 4 was also practical. And the body cast was made of a very small woman, because obviously no one is taking a full body cast of an actual child. They'd probably go to jail. Millie Bobby Brown floating in the kiddie pool was also practical. They actually used 1,200 pounds of Epsom salt to achieve the final effect. To create snow for the winter scenes, over 20 tons of ice were shipped from Florida. Weird place to ship ice from, kind of ironic. They also used potato flakes for snow. Very creative, very innovative. The van flipping scene, that was also done practically using explosives. I thought that was incredible. I love explosion scenes when they're done practically. I feel like I can always tell when it's CGI. I don't know, maybe that's just me. When they first tried the stunt on locations, one of the explosives did not go off and the van destroyed a camera, costing the production thousands of dollars. So obviously practically done effects have their downsides. When the Duffer brothers made it to the final episode of season one, they really started to panic because they knew that this episode was really going to push the limits of the crew on the show. Production for the final episode consisted of long days and nights with very little sleep and a large amount of stress. The Duffers credited the enthusiasm of everyone on the show for making the impossible possible because that was a very hard episode to film. They later stated, quote, This was by far the most challenging episode to pull off. No other episode even comes close, end quote. And if filming was dubbed bananas, B-A-N-A-N-A-S, post-production was buck-fucking-wild. 40% of the final episode had some sort of visual effects enhancement. The visual effects team worked on the shots until the very last possible moment, with the final shots turned in just two weeks before they aired on Netflix, most of them not even entirely complete. How is that possible, you say? 
Well, with Netflix launching every episode simultaneously, they were allowed the opportunity to revisit each episode at the end of post-production to make sure it all fit together. Production had another unique challenge with Gatton Matarazzo. Obviously, Gatton was blossoming into a strapping young lad, and his voice had changed so much by the time production ended that the sound team could not use him for additional dialogue recording. Which was fine in the beginning because they did early cuts on episodes 1 to 4 before they finished shooting, but for the rest it was a little tricky. And here we go again, but... I'm going to say it a lot, just like I did in the last episode. Every detail mattered. Take a shot of espresso every time I say it. Get used to it. Actually, don't take a shot of espresso every time I say it. You would go into cardiac arrest faster than a nun at an Atlanta strip club. Don't, don't do it. Attention to detail, as I have said a bazillion times, is truly something the brothers have mastered. In every area, little things the brothers would incorporate. Like in a flashback Hopper had, he was playing with his daughter in the park. Her hair was tied up with this blue hairband. We later see in, I believe, another flashback? Maybe not. But at a later point, Hopper is seen wearing the same band around his wrist. We also see him playing with it while calling his ex-wife at one point. And this all went down in season one. Jumping ahead a little bit, by the end of season two, we see Eleven wearing the blue band like a bracelet to the snowball. Like what? I love that shit so much because it makes rewatches so much more fresh. It makes me enjoy re-watching the show because I pick up on something new like a small little detail like that every time I re-watch it. Sidebar because it's such a cool fact. Chief Hopper's trailer reportedly only cost the art department one dollar to buy. It's completely irrelevant to this part of the episode but here you go. Back to details. Even with costuming, Nancy's style shifts significantly during the first season. Initially, she wears dresses and skirts and light, quote, feminine, unquote, colors. I don't, you know, whatever. What the fuck does feminine even mean? But anyway, that's a different discussion for another day. But she wore those types of colors, that type of light, flowy style. And she always has her hair down. By the climax of season one, she's wearing jeans and dark colors and her hair is always back. It kind of gives me Sandy vibes from Grease, you know? The same attention to detail goes towards them paying homage as well. As we know now, they had many, many inspirations. One being Alien. There is a scene where Joyce and Hopper are walking through the Upside Down in containment suits. Hopper examines what appears to be a large egg that has cracked open and is glowing yellow. A very clear, not-so-subtle homage to the same scene in Alien. The acronym for Hawkins, Porter, and Light, the cover name for the secret government agency that unlocked the gateway to another dimension and unleashed the creature with no face, is HPL. The author, H.P. Lovecraft, wrote many works exploring the mysterious, sinister creatures from other dimensions. The character design of the creature, the Upside Down, and all the gates seem influenced by his work as well. And again, this is what makes rewatching so special. The first season of Stranger Things premiered worldwide exclusively via Netflix's streaming service on July 15th, 2016. Netflix did not initially reveal subscriber viewership numbers for their original series, and Symphony Technology Group compiled data for the season based on people using software on their phones that measures television viewing by detecting a program's sound. Creepy, a little bit, but you know, whatever. 
In a September 2016 analysis, Netflix found that Stranger Things hooked viewers by the second episode, indicating that the second episode was, quote, the first installment that led at least 70% of viewers who watched that episode to complete the entire first season of a show, end quote. Needless to say, as you and I know well, the show was an instant phenomenon, and like the brothers originally planned, the viewers were hooked. And so was Netflix. Following the release of the first season, the brothers realized that the likability of the characters, especially the children, was the key to the series' success, and they decided to set the second season in 1984 and focus on the same characters rather than that whole anthology idea that we talked about. By the end of July, the Duffer brothers had outlined a plan for the season if it was greenlit. And Netflix's CEO, Reed Hastings, said in early August that the company would be dumb not to renew Stranger Things for a second season. And yes, he was correct. On August 31st, 2016, Netflix then announced that it had renewed Stranger Things for a second season of nine episodes to be released in 2017. Ross and Matt Duffer spent that summer writing in a rental in Lake Hollywood, which they set up as a writer's room. When the second season was announced to the public at the end of August, the producers obviously had a roadmap and an understanding of what it would look like, but the actual writing was still very much in progress. The Duffers said they were nearly ready to wrap up writing and move on to casting and pre-production at the end of September. The brothers wanted the second season to mesh well with the first season. Of course, they wanted it to feel like a complete work, but they also wanted to set elements in place to go forward with additional seasons if they got greenlit for that. They felt like the second season should be treated more as a blockbuster sequel rather than a continuation, hence the Stranger Things 2 title. This approach had some trepidation from Netflix since the company felt movie sequels typically had a bad reputation. Obviously, they've never seen The Little Mermaid 2. Sequels can be fucking iconic, but the Duffer brothers pointed out that there had been many successful sequels that surpassed the original film, and they felt confident with this name. The brothers were very, very tricky and kept fans on their toes while they waited for the new season. Despite revealing episode titles for the season in the announcement teaser, in order to provide some hint of where they were going in season two without giving anything away, Matt Duffer said that some of the titles would change since there were some things they didn't want to put on there because they felt like it would give too much away. So they were dicking the fans around quite a bit. Matt Duffer said, quote, people are smart on the fucking internet. With fan-created videos analyzing the chapter titles, they were right on a lot of the things. Obviously, they were right because the titles had to do with the basis of the episode, of course. They didn't reveal the final titles for the first six episodes of the season until early October 2017. Dialing it back to October 2016, the cast members had received their scripts and also at that time it was announced that Noah Schnapp and Joe Keery had been promoted to the main cast for the second season after a recurring role in the first season. Ryder, Harbour, Wolfhard, Brown, Matarazzo, McLaughlin, Dyer, and Heaton also returned for the season, of course, with Millie Bobby Brown. And Sadie Sink was cast as a new character, Max Mayfield, who is the younger stepsister of Billy, 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 played by De Decree, Daker, Daker, Daker. I don't know exactly how to pronounce his name. We're going to call him Daker Montgomery. Hi, I'm Daker Montgomery. He was cast as a new character, Billy Hargrove. And like I said, this is Max's older stepbrother, and he's violent, unpredictable, and abusive. 
for his audition tape, he danced topless to Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf, or I don't, was it Come On Eileen? Maybe it was both. Could you fucking imagine being named Eileen in the 80s when that song came out? Like, you're just walking through the hallways in your Reebok pumps and your Atari t-shirt and your side ponytail and bright pink blush and Danny fucking dickwad and his dumbbell friends start singing Come On Eileen. And start thrusting their genitals at you. That's a rough junior year. Back to Dacre. He toned down his six-pack abs for this project because he thought that would not suit the character. He said, quote, I took a step back. Guys in the 80s weren't super shredded, so I did a lot of boxing and my diet was not as good, which made for more of a realistic body. So I'm a bit chubbier around the edges. Montgomery was a bit apprehensive about showing a less than perfect body on screen, saying I was, quote, a bit self-conscious that the whole world would be seeing this pudgier version of me than I was in Power Rangers, but ultimately felt it was the right look for the character. Bro, my guy, um, if Billy Hargrove is pudgy, if, if that's what's considered pudgy, you need to touch grass. I am well aware that anyone with any body type can have insecurities and can feel self-conscious, but come on, dude, what the fuck? Like, pudgy? Stop. If he's fucking pudgy, I'm Humpty Dumpty, all right? I, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I don't. The character Billy was originally how the Duffer brothers envisioned Steve, but Joe Keery's influence drastically changed the character's arc. After Steve's redemption at the end of season one, Billy was introduced to give the show a human villain. Dacre did such an incredible job and was so attached to his character, it was very hard for the brothers to cut him out by the end of the season. Sean Astin was also cast as Bob Newby, a former schoolmate of Joyce and Hopper, who runs the Hawkins Radio Shack and is Joyce's boyfriend, which obviously would put him at odds with Hopper, Joyce's obvious soulmate. And Paul Reiser was cast as Sam Owens, a Department of Energy executive who replaces Brenner as the director of Hawkins Laboratory. For Owens, the Duffer brothers referred to the character in their pitch to Netflix for the season as Paul Reiser, and specifically alluded to Reiser's character, Burke, in Aliens, with Ross referencing James Cameron's casting choice for that film, saying, quote, Cameron thought people would inherently trust Reiser and it would be a twist, end quote. Manifestation, folks, this was very clever. Riser's son was a fan of Stranger Things and gave his father an early appreciation of the series. By the time production got in touch with his agent, he was stoked. He was ready to go. Joining them in recurring roles are Linnea Berthelsen as Callie slash eight and Brett Gelman as Marie Bauman. While most of the story for the second season had been decided before the first episode aired, the Duffer brothers took in the audience reactions from the first season to adjust some of the details within the second season, which I think is very smart. They knew the surprise wouldn't ever hit as hard as season one, but Ross Duffer said, quote, the point is not to give everyone what they think they want, because I don't think they really know what they want, end quote. That's kind of how I feel about you. After you season two, there is no other fucking twist that could ever happen that could ever top that. I think they did that way too early. That should have been like the final season of you. Unless they fucking have something in the cards that's even crazier. I don't know, but I'm excited. The second season of Stranger Things is set a year later, starting in October 1984. Will has been rescued, but few know the details of the events that happened. Now Will finds himself as the target of the newest monster from the Upside Down, which is a large, tentacled entity called the Mind Flayer. 
And when it starts terrorizing the citizens of Hawkins, it brings everyone together, Nancy's crew, Joyce, Hopper, everyone, the friend group, along with newcomer Max, as well as the missing 11, must join forces to prevent the threat from increasing. Filming of this new season started on November 7th, 2016, and wrapped on June 3rd. There were nine episodes in this season, and the budget bumped from $6 million an episode to $8 million an episode. Kind of random and potentially a stupid question to throw into the ether, but this budget is simply for production, right? Because there is no way that includes marketing budget as well, because they had a 30-second Super Bowl ad teasing this season. That ad alone, if you are unfamiliar with the ridiculous pricing of Super Bowl ads, cost about five million fucking dollars. I just answered my own question. I heard from somewhere, I can't remember where, that the marketing budget is usually double the production budget, which I absolutely believe, especially after learning about the Super Bowl ad. Because that's over 60% of the entire production budget just for a Super Bowl ad. Insanity. Crazy. But effective. People are still talking about that fucking dumb, um, it was like the crypto commercial where the thing, it was like, um, I don't even know what it's called, but the bouncy thing throughout the screen with the QR code. People are still fucking talking about that commercial. So Super Bowl ads are very effective when done right. For the commercial, the Kellogg company who manufactures Eggos actually partnered with Stranger Things after they saw the insane reception. Obviously, after the first season, demand for Eggos skyrocketed. Filming season two was, again, very tight schedule-wise. Because of this, visual effects supervisor Paul Graff and producer Christina Graff acknowledged that it was challenging to deliver the final visuals for every shot because they had to continue moving from one episode to another without making any mistakes. Despite the hardships, though, they impressed the Duffer brothers with a number of incredible effects and seamless cinematography, most notably the CG shots for the season finale. The second season, consisting of nine episodes, was released on October 27th, 2017, and within the first day of being released, over 16 million people tuned in. The second season has been recognized by Parrot Analytics as the most in-demand digital original series of the world in 2017 and is included in the 2019 edition of Guinness World Records. In August 2017, the marketing analytics from JumpShot determined the season was the seventh most watched Netflix season in the first 30 days after it was released. In addition to season two's release, Netflix also released Beyond Stranger Things, an after show hosted by Jim Rash. The guests of the after show are composed of cast and crew from the series, including the Duffer Brothers and the series stars to discuss the development and behind the scenes production of the series and its larger mythology. As that executive for Netflix said for season two, they would be stupid not to renew for another season. And that was true for season three as well. A trailer was released in December 2018 announcing that Stranger Things Season 3 would be released on July 4th, 2019. That date coincides with the summer setting of the season, including an outright celebration of Independence Day. The Duffer brothers were riding high with the success of Stranger Things, but unfortunately, but commonly, with great success comes some not-so-great problems. 
In 2017, multiple media outlets published articles about a cease and desist letter sent by a Netflix in-house attorney to the operator of a Stranger Things themed bar in Chicago. The letter included humorous references to the series like, unless I'm living in the upside down, we're not going to go full Brenner on you, and the Demogorgon is not always as forgiving. The letter also won praise from lawyers for its even-handedness in not demanding immediate closure of the bar, only demanding that the bar not remain open without Netflix's permission past its initial scheduled run. So that was a little problem with a pretty cool resolution, but we're on to a bigger problem now. Remember in the last episode, I told you to keep Montauk in your cranium. Now it's time to unpack that bad Larry. In April 2018, filmmaker Charlie Kessler filed a lawsuit against the Duffer Brothers, claiming that they stole his idea behind his short film Montauk, which featured a similar premise of a missing boy, a nearby military base doing otherworldly experiments, and a monster from another dimension. He alleged that he pitched his film to the Duffer Brothers and later gave them the script, ideas, story, and film for a larger film idea which he called the Montauk Project. Kessler contended that the Duffer brothers used his ideas to devise the premise for Stranger Things and sought a third of the income that they made from the series. The Duffer brothers' lawyer stated that they never saw Kessler's film nor spoke to him regarding it, and that Kessler had no input into the concepts of Stranger Things. The judge denied summary judgment for the Duffer brothers in April 2019, allowing Kessler's suit to proceed to trial. Just before the trial was due to start in May 2019, Kessler withdrew his lawsuit after hearing the depositions and seeing documents from as early as 2010, which showed him that the Duffer brothers had independently come up with the concept of Stranger Things. Check fucking mate, my dude. So a trickier situation to deal with, but my guy Kessler swerved hard when he saw how steaming his bullshit was. The brothers had bigger things to worry about, mainly writing the third season of their hit show. Their writing actually started before the second season's premiere. The brothers would write for 12 to 14 hours a day. Jesus, oh, I can't even know. My hand hurts just thinking about that. My brain hurts just thinking about that. I've gone on long writing sprees, never even close to 12 to 14 hours. They were just pushing that shit out. That, mm, bad phrasing. I don't know their digestive patterns. I'm sure they fall between the normal three times a day to once every three days. They were probably writing while pooping. Moving on past, as Johnny Depp would say, grumpies. Some human being had actually dropped a um, <clears throat> grumpy. The Duffers stated they really wanted to start the third season with a clean slate, intentionally ending the previous season with very few cliffhangers. It was reported that Netflix wanted both the third and fourth season to be written simultaneously, as to facilitate a back-to-back -back production schedule. That may sound crazy and unreasonable on Netflix's part, but it did make sense because the actors were aging faster than their on-screen characters. Regardless of that, the Duffer Brothers and producer Sean Levy opted to only focus on the third season to ensure it was better developed and more fleshed out. In terms of narrative, the writers were dead set on one thing, and that was making sure Will got some fucking peace. He had some shit that he went through, but he wasn't kidnapped and thrown into another dimension. I still feel like Will has not received the happiness and justice he's deserved. I feel like he's just as fucking sad in this current season. 
The early pitch documents for season three featured a scene that had the Mind Flayer monster rampaging through the Hawkins 4th of July parade. But unfortunately, the idea was later scrapped as the scripts were written, which is such a shame. I wanted to throw that in there because what an amazing scene that would have been. Filming for season three officially began on April 23rd and wrapped on November 13th. And according to executive producer Ian Patterson, the season was filmed almost entirely on location. It's estimated that the budget bumped up to a little less than 10 million doll hairs as well, so they could elevate the show even more. Money tends to make things much more high quality, so this was great news. The third season drew heavy inspiration from the film Fletch. It's kind of a dark comedy from what I've read. I have never seen this movie, but it was released in 1985, which is the year this season takes place. The brothers were also inspired by David Cronenberg, John Carpenter, and George Romero, and sought out to create a darker premise for the third season, while also, of course, infusing that 80s pop culture. So they had the darker premise with the 80s pop influence, and that's a really hard mix, but Stranger Things pulls it off perfectly. The third season is set several months after season two, leading up to the 4th of July celebration in 1985. The new Starcourt Mall has become the center of attention for Hawkins residents, putting most of the other stores out of business. Hopper becomes increasingly concerned about Eleven and Mike's relationship while he's still trying to care for Joyce. And unbeknownst to the town, a secret Soviet laboratory under Starcourt Mall seems to open the gateway to the Upside Down. Here we go again. This allows entities from the Upside Down to possess people in Hawkins and create a new horror to deal with. And despite having closed the portal to the Upside Down, they fear that they are all still in danger from it. Max's brother Billy is affected and they're all trying to help him while Hopper and Joyce have their own little adventure. But let me pause. Let me go back to Billy for just a second. He is or was before this season my favorite character from any season of Stranger Things. Eddie has now ripped that prize away. He is my favorite character of all time in this show. Probably one of my top 10 favorite characters from anything in media. But the scene where Billy was, was he in a fucking sauna? What was he in? He was in that room, the small room, and he was screaming and he was bashing his head against the window, breaking glass. Yeah, that was completely improvised by Dacre Montgomery. That's some Leo DiCaprio improv and Django shit. Just breaking glass, bloody hand all over his co-star's face. There have been a lot of lies set around this dinner table here tonight, but that you can believe. Iconic. The acting was really incredible for this season, not just from Dacre. Everyone's performance was on an upward trajectory, and not saying that it was ever bad, it just kept elevating. Everyone was more confident in their performance, and by this point have fully connected to their character, which was critical, specifically for the younger actors. Because this season explores the theme of change among the kids, who are obviously experiencing their transition period, we'll call it that. So we got introduced to Billy, the new character, but he wasn't the only one. Maya Hawk came on board as Robin Buckley, who is described as an alternative girl who works alongside Steve at the ice cream store in the mall. Carrie Elwes, best known for his performance as Wesley from The Princess Bride, was cast as Mayor Klein. And not a new face, but Priya Ferguson, who portrays Erica Sinclair, had been up to a recurring role. 
And not only was acting incredible, production for this season was insane. The production team had searched around Georgia for a dead mall, one either closed or with significantly reduced vacancy for the film, and they found Gwinnett was nearly perfect. It was built in 1984, and because of this, they had staples of construction from malls in that period, which of course is perfect. They secured a portion of the mall that had been vacant for some time, redressing the storefronts and food court to feature brands of the 80s. And again, that attention to detail, they were paying attention to which stores likely had made it to Indiana by 1985. Not only did they recreate the facade of each of the storefronts, but they worked to fully stock them as well in anticipation for any last minute filming ideas the Duffers may have had. A custom-built grid cloth was used to completely block sunlight from entering the atrium of the food court to enable filming night scenes during the day. And if I'm not mistaken, there were people actually shopping while major spoilers were being filmed a stone's throw away. I know they had a portion closed off, but still that shit's crazy. Like, I feel like people could probably still hear it. At the very beginning of Stranger Things, the brothers fully intended on shooting most of the special effects using practical methods, because as I mentioned previously, they really, really preferred this method. However, the effects they now wanted to create were very grand, and there were issues with the deployment of practical effects on set, and when they could pull it off, they were very unhappy with the results. They did not turn out very well. The Duffer Brothers came around to utilizing digitally produced special effects starting in the second season and even more so for the third season. They didn't really have a choice. During pre-production, the Duffers sat down with their senior VFX supervisor, production designer, and senior concept illustrator to plan out the digital visual effects for the season because they needed a plan. This season was bigger than anything they had done previously. One of the most important things they needed to figure out was the design of the Mind Flayer. And the brothers were very inspired by the thing when it came to this design. On set, the Stranger Things team was like, okay, so it's going to be digital. Let's get something that the actors can respond to for a guideline. And the budget for the season was not big enough to have some sort of onset augmented reality revisualization rendering. That's big, big cash. It was not only expensive, but it was also impractical to have a 3D rough replica of the Mind Flayer. Like that, that would be crazy. This bitch was big. This was like an Argentinosaurus in a mall. So 3D fucking, no, that wasn't gonna work. Sorry about my Ross Geller moment. God, yeah, botanists are such geeks. Is that a dinosaur tie? Hmm? Oh yeah. <laughs> The Argentinosaurus is so fascinating to me. That fucker is like 100 feet tall and over 200,000 pounds. That's like the daddy to the T-Rex. You know, I always thought the T-Rex was the biggest dinosaur. I was wrong. The Stranger Things team did try to construct something for the actors to interact with. A 100 pound Zeppelin shaped creature shell. But that, as you can imagine, was an absolute nightmare and it did not work out. So the VFX supervisor went out and purchased the largest object he could think of. And according to him, that was a blow up beach ball. Now, maybe it was like this massive blow up beach ball. I just don't know. I think of like a beach ball at a baseball game, which is not very large. 
Button, however, he then taped the beach ball to the end of a 20-foot boom pole so he could puppeteer the head, which provided an eyeline for the actors while also giving camera operators a shot at framing and tracking the creature's movements. So it worked out great. For the Tom Bruce monster, the solution was a bit more interesting. The lighting was erratic and highly complicated during the scenes that it was featured in and could have been a massive headache during post-production work. The VFX supervisor came up with yet another solution for this. This was a stunt guy wearing a giant silver ball helmet while standing in for an incarnation of the monster that was six to seven feet tall. This helmet was clever because it allowed the team to see the variance of brightness of the lights from frame to frame as well. The stun coordinator was the stand-in monster and he fucking owned that role. This was his time to shine. He was told that he really needed to convey that evil energy and roar and forget the fact that he was wearing a red spandex suit with a giant silver ball helmet. I don't know why, maybe it's the red spandex, but I only picture the outfits Devo wore in the video for Whip It with those hats. I picture that with a silver ball on top of the hat. And you know what? I'm not mad at that. But yeah, this dude, the stunt coordinator, was screaming at the top of his lungs and charging like a bull down the hallway. He understood the assignment. I would be cracking up on set. I would not be able to take that seriously. The magic of movies and television is amazing. Obviously, this season was much crazier than previous ones, specifically with post-production and with the special effects. So crazy, in fact, the brothers and Sean Levy had to delay the release. They understood the stakes were incredibly high and they needed to deliver something way bigger this time around. So they did what they did best, fine tuning, because they are masters of attention to detail. That's right. And the wait was worth it. The season was released on July 4th, 2019, with eight episodes ranging from 49 to 77 minutes in length. For the third season, Netflix revealed that the show had broken viewing records for Netflix with 40.7 million households having watched the show in its first four days. And 18.2 million already watched the entire series within that time frame. And I was one of them. Within its first month, the season was watched by 64 million households, setting a new record for the most watched original Netflix series at that time. Personally, I love this season. I thought it was my favorite season until this new season. It still holds a very special place in my heart. I love it. So I'm not surprised that it pulled in such crazy numbers, but goddamn, this season blew it out of the water. In September, 2019, the series was renewed for a fourth season, which is being split into two volumes, as we now know. The first volume was released on May 27th, and the second volume will be released on the 1st of July this year. In February, 2022, the series was also renewed for a fifth fifth and final season. So when they announced that season five would be the last season, this shocked the cast. They had no idea. But like, how do you not know? You, this, this, like, they're getting old. There's only so much that can happen. The, there has to be some resolution. The upside down is not going to fucking torment this town forever. It, it, like, it would get old. There are stories to be told within the Stranger Things universe that are not this story. I don't know if they were expecting to be in wheelchairs when the series was ending. I don't know. Better to end the show with a bang than bore people to death by extending it too far. Now I want to get into my thoughts on this season. Spoiler free first, of course. 
And before I even do that, actually, I want to share. Remember how I told you the budget for season one was six and then it bumped up to nine and then blah, blah, blah. According to the Wall Street Journal, the budget for Stranger Things 4 was 30 million. Three zero per episode. Multiply that by nine and you've got 270 million dollars. That is a hundred million doll hairs more than the production budget for Top Gun Maverick. That isn't even the marketing budget. If what I heard was correct, it's double. That's like fucking half a billion dollars on marketing. I don't believe that. I can't possibly believe that. I can't even imagine what season five is gonna be. Anywho, back to my thoughts on the season. This is spoiler free first, just short and sweet, really. I do feel like everyone has seen it by now, at least everyone who would be listening to a Stranger Things deep dive episode. But I want to, you know, be courteous just in case. I love this season. I wasn't sure if the length of the episodes would be too much. If you are someone who hasn't seen it and you're worried about that, don't. It flows beautifully. The Duffer brothers always planned it to feel like a movie and it feels very elevated and it does feel like a movie. A very long movie. I feel like every episode could be a movie. So yeah, the storytelling feels elevated, the acting, everything feels elevated, mostly because the story they are telling is far more serious with really severe consequences. And as I have been teasing this entire episode, I've been dying to talk about the new character, Eddie Munson, played by Joseph Quinn, my fucking hero. We are also introduced to Eduardo Franco as Argyle, who was also a star this season, loved his character. Last and certainly not least, Jamie Campbell Bower, who plays Peter Ballard and really gives a fabulous performance in that role. This season reminds me a lot of The Prisoner of Azkaban. Stay with me, don't don't roll your eyes. Only because, how do I even explain this? Almost like an escalation of horror. The first Harry Potter was really sweet and whimsical. Wasn't that scary, you know, it was child friendly. Chamber of Secrets did get a lot darker. I feel like that's when we knew it's like, okay. All right, we're we're not in Kansas anymore. But The Prisoner of Azkaban, for me at least, was really much more dark and intense. And you really felt like it was far more adult. It went from kitty shit to holy shit. And that is how I feel about this season. It actually has some really fucking terrifying moments and a ton of anxiety ridden moments. It's like I said, the best season yet. If you liked last season with all the goofy stuff, you may not like this season as much. It's not as fun, I guess. The humor and whimsy is still there. It's just under a layer of impending doom. We aren't singing the never-ending story this season. And that's kind of my short and sweet spoiler-free thoughts. Now we are moving into spoiler zones, okay? The timestamps are in the show notes. If you want to catch the end of this episode, which is the future of the cast and what they'll be doing next. If not, that's totally fine. I will say goodbye now and thank you for listening. Spoilers will be starting in five, four, three, two. All right, let's fucking go. First of all, that fucking cunt deserved it. She deserved it. I don't care. I wished it knocked her fucking unconscious. 
you know what I'm talking about. That roller skate was perfect. What a perfect scene. That felt so wonderful to watch. I sound like a crazy person, but I feel like I'm not alone. I was cheering her on. How dare she make fun of Eleven? Hopper was and always will be her fucking hero. You low-life douchebags. All of those kids, they fucking suck. And that main girl, that girl who reminds me of Tom Tom from fucking 13 going on 30, that little fucking monster, her attitude stinks. It fucking stinks like Dick Cheney's gooch. And that hair fried to fucking filth and the color of an old dying man's piss. She is everything we don't want to be, children. She is your deterrent for being a bully. I don't know if I used that word in the right context, but she got what was coming to her. And bro, the scene in the courtyard when... Eleven raised her hand to just annihilate this girl with her magical powers. And I knew, I knew nothing would happen. And I said out loud, oh no. And I covered my eyes because it was so cringe and I knew it was going to be cringe, but also it was hilarious. Sorry, I had to get those things off my chest first. I've been bursting at the seams. I knew I had to just yell about that fucking monster. All right, this is going to be all over the place. What else is new? Episode one doesn't pull any punches. It starts off fucking brutal. Truly revisiting the fact that this is not a never-ending story sing-along. Like I said, there was also that bathroom scene with Chrissy, which wasn't the scariest thing in the whole season. But when I was watching it, I was shook up. Just from the directing and audio and lighting, it was absolutely horrifying. It was a little taste of what was to come this season. They were giving us little airplane bites before they stuffed us like a Thanksgiving turkey. Back to Eddie, my hero, exactly who I want to be when I grow up. A style icon, a great friend, a leader, a badass when it counts. He takes no shit and he's always holding. What more could you ask for, my friends? What more? He's great. I won't get too into the weeds. I know this episode has been an earful. So I'll just try to jump from point to point to point to point. You've already seen it. You don't need like a summary. I knew the ending, kind of. I knew Peter was going to be Vecna somehow. I knew he was number one when he was like, you remind me of someone. And I knew I didn't trust his ass when he manipulated the fuck out of Eleven to take the chip out or whatever. You cannot trust someone who looks like the fucking human fleshy embodiment of a Tim Burton character, you know? I, I wasn't falling for it. For example, look at Eddie. He's like the son of Brian May. He has puppy dog eyes and a fluffy mullet. Unlike Billy, who had viper eyes and a styled mullet. There are levels here, people. Keep up, keep vigilant. You need to know what to look for when you're looking for signs of who not to trust in a show. All right, Vecna's first kill. A masterclass in horror. Just wow. I was tripping fucking balls watching that. Brava, brava. All the kills are really gnarly and what a cool idea. It all had a bigger meaning. But the best part for me was the absolutely genius, perfectly crafted combination of terrifying and humorous, specifically in the Chrissy Eddie scene. Chrissy, wake up! Hello. Chrissy, wake up. Can you hear me? Wake up, Chrissy. I don't like this. Chrissy, wake up. 
seeing Eddie's reaction to this girl cracking every fucking bone in her body while levitating, she just fucking turned into origami. Eddie's expression was priceless. He went full Marty Feldman, and I was all the way here for it. Hopper was a highlight of this volume of the season as well. It was such a new perspective. We saw him in such a different light. And we saw him very vulnerable when he talked about how he thought it was his fault that his daughter died because of the Agent Orange or whatever. And let me tell you, they really said, fuck it. Let's write his storyline with the mindset, anything that can go wrong, will go wrong. I did not know exactly what would happen with Hopper, but I knew everything was too happy way too early. I knew all that work that he had done, fucking breaking his ankle and all that was for nothing. There was too much time left. It didn't make sense. I also didn't expect them all to be in Russia at the same time, Murray, Joyce, and Hopper. All in all, I really enjoyed seeing that side to Hopper. I think that his character is forever changed from this experience for the better and probably for with some trauma though. So maybe not all for the better. Joyce and Murray were great. I enjoyed their storyline. Speaking of storylines, there were a lot. I have a feeling a lot of people who aren't hardcore fans will be turned off by that. It can be hard to follow. I didn't have that issue, but it would not surprise me. I loved watching Murray be a badass. He always seemed to me like a misplaced Napoleon Dynamite character. Tina, you fat lard, come get some dinner. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but truly, I feel like he would be sitting right next to Kip in the Rex Quando dojo. I mean, he has the skills, obviously, so maybe... Maybe Napoleon Dynamite and Stranger Things are in the same universe. Find the clues, people. Put this shit together. I want a world where Steve Harrington and Uncle Rico exist together. And worlds colliding continued. Um, Robert England? Hello. That man loves a good cameo. I swear he takes on every role in any horror movie that is offered to him. It doesn't matter if it's A, B, C, D, Z, horror. He doesn't care. He played Victor Creel this season and he looked bananas. It was so good. The makeup team fucking snapped this season. They do all the time. CGI as well. That was incredible. What else? What else? Oh, Lucas did not like his storyline. It felt very forced, very weird. I thought it had good bones and it could have been great, but it was messy. Very, very messy. He randomly decides, fuck these friends that I've saved the world with and have been through trauma with because I want to be popular in high school. Yes, I suppose that's believable. Sure, it could happen. But then he was like the basketball star winning the big game and he's this big hotshot for two seconds and then suddenly he's the victim of what feels like fraternity hazing. Lucas deserves better. I feel like him and Will's character are just so incomplete. I think it makes sense for Will because he's obviously figuring himself out. He cannot catch a break. He is also very clearly, uncomfortably, awkwardly, painfully in love with Mike, which I'm sure is very confusing, specifically in the 80s and at that age. And, you know, his best friend slash sister type thing um, is dating him. I don't know how they're going to tie that shit up with a bow. Someone's going to get hurt and someone's going to look like a fucking asshole. So I don't know what that is. One little detail involving Will, very small, was who he did his project on. As soon as I saw that they made the name of the dude very visible on his board thing, 
even though he never presented it, I knew. I knew that there was some sort of hint in there at something. I looked it up. The person he did the project on, I can't remember now, of course, but he's some sort of scientist or engineer or something. And he was actually arrested for being gay back in the day. I'm telling you, these brothers are fucking geniuses with the details. Every little detail. Take a shot. But back to Lucas, he seems much more self-assured in comparison to Will. He's always seemed very, very confident. And it doesn't make sense to me. I think they need to figure him out more because his character has so much potential. But, you know, maybe season five. Eleven's storyline was obviously very interesting, but odd. Um, it was really the only weird CGI that I can recall from any of the seasons. I don't know if it's poor CGI or just me, I'm not that knowledgeable, but it looked like shit when they went from the current age of 11 to her being a little baby 11 or like a younger 11. That was bizarre and the whole thing that Dr. Brenner was doing with her was really confusing and hard to follow for me. I wondered the whole time, could Brenner see what she was doing? Is this altering time? There was a lot of confusing parts for me. But that shit has always been confusing to me. I'm really bad with like time travel. I don't know if this is even considered time travel or whatever. It, that That is always really hard for me to grasp. All of Vecna's scenes were incredible and so gruesome. Max's scene when she's captured by him in the Upside Down was obviously iconic. And now all of a sudden everyone is a Kate Bush fangirl and Running Up That Hill has always been their favorite song. I am not gatekeeping this song. Deadass didn't even know this song existed before the show, never popped up on any 80s playlists I've listened to, was never mentioned in any VH1 80s countdowns that I watched in the 2000s. So it went right past me. Sorry, I'm not a cool girl who knows Kate Bush. I was born in 94. I'm sorry. But I totally thought the idea of your favorite song pulling these trauma-ridden victims out of a dark place away from their demons, that was powerful. I really loved that. The Upside Down really looked amazing too. I loved exploring it more and seeing the kids down there communicating with the other side using a goddamn light bright. How genius. On the flip side of that, seeing Nancy have to relive Barb's death. Why? Why did you have to do that to us? Didn't like that. Wasn't necessary. Duffers. We just healed. We just healed. Okay? The Barb fandom just settled down. You forget about something? You forget about old Barb? Nancy's friend sitting on the diving board, trapped in the upside down for the past two months. Oh, there was the raid too. That threw me. I was like, what is that? What? What is going on? That was crazy. I feel like they already wrapped this bitch up pretty well. I feel like two more movie length episodes is plenty to have a resolution for the entire series, but I'm not complaining. I'm sorry if I'm missing something massive. I'm sure I am. It was a lot. Hello, editing me here. I am just going to place my thoughts and theories about volume two right here. I do apologize for the poor quality of microphone, by the way. I will make this quick and painless, I promise. From this point forward, I will be discussing spoilers for season four, volume two. Volume two, the last two episodes that premiered this season, the most recent episodes, the finale of season four, if you will. I don't know how to make it any clearer. So if you don't want spoilers, you want to skip ahead to the outro if you want to, or you can just freeze here. You have been warned. I did not see volume two yet when I'm 
absolutely just raving about Eddie and saying he was my hero. How perfect, right? I bawled my eyes out. Did I have an edible? Yes, but I would have been just as emotional if I had not. I think that was the dumbest thing they ever could have done. I thought Eddie was the greatest thing to happen to that show. I'm heartbroken over Eddie, but I have my theory about how he can come back to the show. I'll get to that in a second. Overall, I thought it was incredible. I thought it had some 80s tropes to it. A lot of Star Wars influence as well. That scene though with Eleven taking down the helicopter. Okay, Ray. Okay. I know nobody liked that trilogy, so I'm just not even going to talk about it any further. I'll never say Ray's name again. I don't care about Max. I know that's cold-hearted and awful to say, but I've never seen her as someone with personality. I think she has as much personality as a breadcrumb. Lucas, I felt like that moment he had wasn't enough for him. I think he needs a bigger hero arc in the next season. They need to do more with his character. I feel like they just waste him. Will again, can never catch a fucking break that scene in the car. I just don't understand. They said they wanted Will to have a break. They said that seasons ago. And here we are. He's got the goosebumps on the back of his neck. People are speculating that he will be uh, possessed by Vecna. I don't believe that. I believe he will be the hero. And my theory, just to wrap this up so you don't have to listen to this terrible quality anymore. I do believe that Eleven will have to time travel. The Duffer brothers had said that the Upside Down taking place in, I believe, 1984. It's a few years prior to the present time in the show. They said that matters. That has, you know, importance. So I believe that Eleven will travel back in time and she will never, ever make contact. She will never uh, open the Upside Down. She won't do any of that. She'll never meet Mike. Nah, 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 nah. Nothing. Eddie will be safe and alive and out of danger. He'll still be a hero. People will actually know him and love him like they should. Max will be alive. Billy will be alive. It'll be a happy ending. But I believe the brothers are going with their original plan that they told us when it was supposed to be an anthology. They said Eleven was going to die saving the world or saving Hawkins, whatever. Same thing. And I believe that's how they will end the show is with Eleven sacrificing herself. That about wraps up my review. Sorry again for the quality of the mic. I hope it's not hurting your ears too much. For now, back to past me and move on to the future for the cast because I am always curious to see what other projects people work on aside from what is their most popular project and I'm just gonna hit the most notable ones there's some interesting things here Millie has projects lined up for filming roles including the ever popular Enola Holmes as well as running her cosmetics company Florence by Mills which is very successful not the greatest products in my opinion in my experience but you know it does well it's good for like the younger kids Finn's next big role is in the upcoming film Pinocchio Guillermo del Toro spin on a classic tale and he is currently filming his role in an animated series New Gen that is coming later this year and he is also very passionate about his band the Aubreys David Harbour seems to have some quiet time for now Although he does have one film coming out called Violent Night, which to me sounds like a Christmas horror film. And come on, folks, we don't have enough of that. I would love another Christmas horror film. Winona's upcoming filmography is dead quiet with no work announced, at least at the time of my recording. Gatton's got a couple of voice acting gigs coming our way soon. Caleb is dipping his toes into more horror. He is actually going to be in an upcoming film directed by Lee Daniels titled Demon House. So that's really awesome. Noah Schnapp is currently filming a Jordan Ross directed film called The Tudor. Sadie Sink has a movie coming out directed by one of my favorites, Darren Aronofsky, and it's titled The Whale. And the summary for this film 
sounds l- like it's um, a Darren Aronofsky film. So I'm very excited about that. Maya Hawk has a Wes Anderson film coming. And damn, like all these cast members have really heavy hitter films coming. Like they are about to blow up. And finally, Dacre Montgomery is going to have a part in the new Elvis film, which I have been bitching about for the longest time. That cheap knockoff twit and flashy pants and fucking greasy hair, a fucking gross knockoff version of Chuck Berry. He could never. They are seemingly, I am going to see it because I want to put my money where my mouth is. But from the trailer, they are making it seem like he's some fucking glorified civil rights hero. We'll see how the movie goes. I'll be sure to let you know. Just another update from editing me. I couldn't help myself listening back to this part. Uh, they did glorify him. The movie was horrible. The directing was disgusting. The editing was a nightmare. It was the longest film I think I've ever seen in my life just bloated with so much excess bullshit i was like come on just die already they very gently brushed over the fact that priscilla was a teen although she looked the same age as elvis in the film so mm, yeah and yeah it was a it was a bad film that's all back to past me exciting stuff folks exciting stuff but on the bright side i'm sure dacre will be fabulous in this role Thank you so much for listening in. We got through quite a lot of information. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive of Stranger Things. I hope you found the little details as interesting as I did. And I hope you enjoyed or will enjoy the new season. Once again, it brings me absolutely no pleasure to spotlight today's organization, abortionfunds.org. This website is absolutely incredible and there has never been a more important time to support your local independent abortion fund. I know many people would rather give support to smaller organizations rather than Planned Parenthood and I totally get that. I believe Planned Parenthood is incredible and does amazing work in so many ways, but I want to share other options as well. Through abortionfunds.org, you can find local funds to donate to. If you are curious what exactly these organizations do and where your money will go, you simply go to abortionfunds.org, type in your zip code, and scan through the funds close to you. They have a link to the organization's websites as well, so you can do even more research and see if you can help in other ways if you are not comfortable or capable making a donation. As I have mentioned, there really is no better time to help out a cause in any way you can. Thank you again. Stay caffeinated. Stay streaming. Stay strong.